Welcome to another episode of the London Talks at Night podcast. This is an interview with serial entrepreneur Jonathan Street. Jonathan is most famous for founding Street PLC, the UK's leading supplier of waste and recycling solutions. In his Ten Commandments of Entrepreneurship talk, Jonathan talks about his journey from founding the company in 1993 with little more than a phone, a fax machine and a car, to growing it into a multi-million pound business, which he floated on the stock exchange and later exited in an eight-figure deal. Jonathan's next talk with us is on Tuesday the 23rd of May, and you can get your tickets on funding.com. Enjoy the show. So Jonathan, could you just tell us a bit about your background and how you got started in business? Okay, well, I suppose, Having now met a lot of other entrepreneurs, I I, I was a classic case for becoming an entrepreneur on the basis that probably there was nothing else I could do. Um, And uh, I I set out in life deciding to be a pop star, Um, not an easy thing to do, Um, less easy to do if you're not really dedicated to it. And I obviously thought fame would just come and happen, clearly it it didn't. and there came a time when I needed to start thinking about earning a, a few quid. And I ended up with a succession of different jobs and my own little enterprises, all of which um, provided a lot of learning um, to get me ready for when I actually started in business, which was in 1993. And the background, um, in, in a nutshell, is that uh, I'd, I'd been doing a lot of work for a fitted bedroom company. Uh, mainly in direct marketing. Uh, I was headhunted by a menswear company and that didn't work out and there I was with no job um, and a bit of money in the bank and uh, a lot of sales and marketing skills that I developed and I was really looking for something I suppose with an added dimension. So I knew I could earn a living, that that was easy, but I wanted to give something back. I wanted a a social or an environmental or a charitable angle to what I was doing. And I ended up reading in a directory uh, of green issues, we pay to bury our waste in holes in the ground, and yet the material we bury has a value, and so we pay for it twice. And this was a, a sort of eureka moment, that here was a major problem to solve, And if I could do something towards this problem, uh, A, I'd be doing a great social and environmental service, B, I'd probably make some money at the same time. But where do you start? I mean, you have to remember there was no internet. If you wanted to research stuff, you had to go to a reference library and trawl through directories. Very, very slow and difficult communication, pre-email. You had to write to people or ring people. Slow, tedious, difficult. But I persevered and eventually I was offered a a voluntary position with a a little organisation in Leeds called Save, Waste and Prosper. And uh, I decided to take the opportunity and to make myself completely indispensable very, very quickly. Now, bless them, they let me look after their cash flow, their accounts and their financial forecasting. So (laughs) I was indispensable very, very quickly. Uh, And they started paying me after a couple of weeks. Uh, And I worked on a number of projects, one of which was with a plastics manufacturer who had developed quite a revolutionary new bin for the recycling market. Um, The long and short of it is I ended up doing some consultancy work for that plastics company uh, and eventually that came to an end. 
Uh, and that was the point where I started on my own because I recognised I was onto something. These plastics people were only halfway there. I knew I could make it happen, or at least I thought in my heart I could make it happen. So in 1993, I set up on my own. I had a little office in Leeds that I'd been working out of uh, previously. Um, a phone, a fax machine, a laptop computer and a car and that was it. Those were the tools I needed and I was off. Um, and that began a business which 10 years later I floated on the stock market and 21 years later I exited in an eight-figure deal. So it was the beginning of something quite exciting and uh, there were lots of up and ups and downs along the way. Uh, but uh, a really interesting journey which I'll be talking about when, when I give my presentation at the end of March. You mentioned that you made yourself indispensable. How did you do it? Well, basically, they would have been quite happy for me to volunteer forever because they didn't have a lot of money. And uh, people who came and worked for free were, were a blessing to them. Um, and I could see that, that if they were going to pay me, I needed to be valuable to them. Um, and uh, I suppose, unintentionally, they gave me all these things to do they were absolutely mission critical. So after a couple of weeks, I really was right in the middle of that business uh, and I had my hands on everything that they needed to, to progress. I have to say the rest of them were not, were not uh, I, I, I was about to say they weren't the smartest cookies. They were very smart. Most people there had more than one university degree, but they weren't streetwise. They weren't commercial, they were just uh, academics up in their ivory towers. So I was, I was very different, I was a bit of a breath of fresh air for them. Do you think there's a difference between being intellectually smart and street smart? And which do you think is more beneficial for entrepreneurship? Well, you ask a very interesting question and uh, each year... Um, Ernst and Young, who do the Entrepreneur of the Year programme, each year they sort of publish a report about what they found, and it ebbs and flows. So some years all the entrepreneurs are uh, streetwise, uneducated barrow boys, and some years they've all got university degrees, and some years it's a mix. But in my experience, um, the kind of thing I do, which is basically trading, you know, you, you, you pick it up... Um, <laughs> You pick it up from the market stall. You don't learn that in university. Um, you learn it from, from being streetwise. And uh, when I started the business, um, there were no mentors. Uh, there were no government initiatives. There was nobody from the bank who was going to pat you on the back and, and help you along the way. You were on your own. And so you had to learn at the coalface. You, you had to throw yourself in at the deep end. And if you had a problem, you had to solve it. And that to me is the essence of entrepreneurship you know just looking all these problems that come at you head on and dealing with them uh, and my 21 years in business uh, in fact I just said the other week it was one long firefight it was just a series of things that needed sorting out uh, and it really fell to me to sort them out because that's how my mind works the other people in the business and eventually the 150 other people in the business who had degrees coming out of their ears, they, they didn't have it in them to do this fundamental problem solving that, that fortunately I was able to do. Do you think entrepreneurship is genetic or is it something that can be learned and developed? Well, I think, I think the younger Jonathan Strait um, was not much of an entrepreneur. 
I mean, I did, I did sort of buy and sell a few bits while I was at school, but nothing, nothing serious. Um, I tell a story about my, my great-grandfather, who was born um, in Eastern Europe, uh, in a place uh, which is now part of Romania, and he decided uh, he was going to be a master tailor, and he, he became an apprentice, so he did what I did. He basically offered his services for free in order to learn. Um, and I suppose some of that must have rubbed off on me, these stories about this man. So he, um, having qualified uh, as a tailor, um, decided there was no future in his home country and he was off to America to, uh, to be the master tailor that, that he was. And um, off he went with his young wife and her mother. I think his wife was 19 at the time. He can't have been much older. Uh, and the three of them uh, went to Hamburg to wait for the boat to St. Louis in, in, in the States, St. Louis in the States. And uh, he decided that he, he, he didn't look the part, his collar was a bit dirty. Uh, and he was going to go out uh, with the mother-in-law, left the 19-year-old bride in, in, in the hotel, uh, and off they went to buy a new collar. And they got lost terribly lost. They didn't take the address of where they were staying and 15 hours later they came back to the frantic uh, young bride who was beside herself, thought they were dead. Um, and of course the boat to St. Louis had sailed. The next boat came here and in fact they lived very, very close to where we are now in the east end of London. This is where my great-grandfather turned up, got a job, worked for a week as a tailor and was given one gold sovereign for his wages and said to the boss, give me another one. And without hesitation, this man gave him a second gold sovereign. And he went home and said to his wife, I must be some tailor. You know, the guy just doubled my wages because I asked him, I will never work for anybody again as long as I live. I'm going to be my own man. And he was, and he set up a very successful business. Uh, all his children worked in it provided for them and gradually moved out from the East End to Stoke Newington to, to the suburbs. Um, and some of this as a child must have rubbed off on me, you know, that I had this great grandfather who was, who was an immigrant entrepreneur who, who came to this country, couldn't speak English, but, but had these skills and eventually developed something of value. So that's part of my DNA. But I think in terms of me as an entrepreneur, it was necessity, really. You know, I needed to have a job. I found it difficult to work for other people because I was very single-minded and very driven, and I found ultimately other people let me down. So I wanted to be responsible for myself, and, and, and that's what I did. What is the Michael Jackson effect, and how important is appearance in business? Yeah, so when I was when I was young, uh, we'd go to grandmother's house for lunch on a Sunday, and she would have the the the, um, the news of the world, the people, the mirror, all of the tabloids, uh, and of course um, there wasn't a huge amount to do once you'd had the uh, very large and lavish lunch she used to feed us. So I'd sit and read the tabloids, and. I noticed that there were certain people that they always wrote about, and one of these was Michael Jackson, because at the time he was sleeping in an oxygen tent, he had a pet gorilla or whatever it was, and, and uh, it struck me that people were interested in this man because of his eccentricity. And there were other people that were written about, uh, I remember particularly one Alan Sugar, who was always 
always in the paper because of the shenanigans around Amstrad, which was a public company at the time, and he wasn't behaving particularly like the owner of a public company perhaps should. So these people were being written about because they were eccentric, because they were uh, outspoken, because they were notorious, or sometimes because they looked a bit different. Um, and all of this um, formed uh, quite a big lesson when I, when I started out. Now, for the first six months of my business, nothing happened. Very few customers were coming through the door and I had some very big competitors who had large marketing budgets and there was just little me with, with very little. And I had this flash of inspiration one day. I mean, my, my appearance had become quite distinctive. I'd grown a wax moustache, I had a ponytail, I started to wear quite outrageous eyewear. And, and I, I felt I had these tools, but I didn't know how to get them across to other people. And then I had this flash of inspiration to have a caricature drawn of me. And I'd started to do a, a newsletter about the business. So what I did was I put this caricature right across the page. The moustache sort of literally touched the left and right edges of the page. And suddenly, everybody I bumped into in the market felt they knew me. You know, they felt they'd had some interaction with me. It was like this cartoon character that lived on their desk. It was like an alter ego of me, and it really worked. And this um, eccentricity of appearance and a whole series of caricatures, which ended up being put on the back of exhibition stands and really milked to death as a, as a marketing device, really proved effective. And um, my appearance became part of my personal brand, my trademark. Um, and for example, if I did a, a trade exhibition, it would be expected that every day I'd have a different pair of glasses on and people would literally come to the stand to see what I was wearing. So it, it worked really well for me and, uh, uh, and it's still my personal brand. Um, and at, at the time I decided that the business and me needed some distance between us, that actually proved very, very difficult because my brand was so closely tied in with the brand of the business. So your original name isn't Jonathan Strait. Can you tell us a little bit more about the story behind that? No, this is true. You've done your research. Um, I was born Jonathan Gay, um, which is a you know, nice enough name in its own right, but being uh, an all-boys uh, grammar school as I was, obviously I got a lot of ribbing for my name and... Uh, um, I'd always thought about changing it, but the thing was, what do you change it to? It's quite difficult to just say, yeah, I'll change my name. You actually need something else that you're happy with. So I didn't change it. And um, I remember um, I had a friend uh, who had changed his name. Now, his name was something uh, inoffensive, but he'd concocted this story that he couldn't get a girlfriend. And so he changed his name to Howard you like to go out for a drink. The surname was, would you like to go out for a drink? And this had been picked up by the son who paid him uh, a bit of money for the story. And what followed was a whole series of name change stories that he did. Um, Howard, you like to help me clear my overdraft and, 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 and lots of other stupid names like this. And each time he did it, they paid him 50 pounds or 100 pounds. And one day he said to me, do you know, I've had the most amazing idea. You need to change your name to straight. You need to tell the press you can't get a girlfriend because of your name and you're changing it to straight. And I thought, well, yeah, this is interesting. Let's see what happens. So I rang the News of the World news desk, although it was the Sun and News of World news desk in Manchester, 
and within 40 minutes two journalists were on the doorstep and I, I suppose the truth is I wasn't really going to go through with this but they they needed the deeds to run the story so I had to go and change my name the kind lady who did the uh, the deed poll um, had only done one other name change before which was some loser who wanted to change his name to Elvis Presley um, <laughs> So I was her second, uh, and uh, Jonathan Gay became Jonathan Strait. Um, and the next morning, this was the headline on the front page of The Sun in every edition in every region. Um, so something like 12 million people saw that story, and it went down in, in sort of folklore history. And even now, I bump into people and they say, I remember that, I read that, I saw that in the paper. Uh, it was just the biggest story that happened on that day. Nothing else happened in the world. And the new name obviously suited me a lot better, became the name of my business, which was Straight PLC. And uh, certainly no regrets. Um, and I think possibly some people might uh, take a bit of offence at what I did, but really there's none intended. It was just a bit of fun. You've obviously got a very eccentric style and memorable appearance, and it appears this has been hugely beneficial for your business. Would you recommend other entrepreneurs follow this approach? And have you got any advice for anybody thinking of doing the same? Well, I, I wouldn't suggest that somebody necessarily re replicated exactly what I did, but one of my 10 commandments, and, and I have sort of 10 themes that I talk about, uh, when I tell my story, one of them is to be memorable. And it doesn't really matter how you're memorable, you just have to be memorable. So you have to think, I'm going to go and meet somebody uh, and I'm hopefully going to have an impact on them. What is it that, that, that I'm going to do or what is it about my appearance or my behaviour that means that they'll remember me? And I mean, I remember a plastic box salesman um, who came to pitch to me one day and the reason I remember him was because he refused the offer of a chair and he sat on one of his containers. Now this proved that the container was extremely strong and robust, but it also made me remember him because everybody else sat on a chair and he sat on a plastic box. So it's just quirky, eclectic, eccentric, different things. Just recognise what's different about you and then make a noise about it. And, and I think that is a general rule of marketing for anybody. What's different about what you're doing? And pick it up. That's how you get noticed. Can you take us through the rest of the Ten Commandments? Well, I, I can't actually remember the other nine offhand without notes, but they're things like uh, setting goals, communicating effectively, being honest, knowing your competition, uh, reinventing yourself, uh, being, being sharing and uh, giving of your time and your money, um, helping other people, uh, leading by example, th this kind of thing. And they're all sort of um, illustrated with examples from, from my, my career. What was school like for you? I went to Leeds Grammar School. It's now called the Grammar School at Leeds. It's been rebranded. Um, they have girls there now. Probably my education would have been ten times worse if there had been girls there when I went. But anyway, it was uh, it was a very disciplinarian uh, environment. It was much like I don't know if you've ever seen the program, the 1950s school. It, that's how it was. It was a very sort of archaic way of of, of learning, um, and I didn't like it. And I didn't get on with it, and uh, I found it very very boring. 
Um, my strategy for survival and indeed popularity was to be the class clown. And rather than recognising that I was in fact a comic genius, uh, I was punished extensively. And I remember in one physics lesson being told, um, you know, you think you're so clever uh, when everybody else goes home this Wednesday, you'll be staying behind and you'll be doing a detention for me. And I said, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, sir, but I'm actually booked for the next six months. I'd be, be glad to do a detention for you next May, at which point I was ejected from the class, as you can imagine. So I didn't like it very much. Um, I was understimulated. But the saving grace was when we came to the sixth form for the first year ever, uh, a course in business studies was offered, an A-level in business studies. And I was first in the line to uh, talk about the course. I think only nine of us actually did it. And it was the only A-level that interested me remotely, and it's the only one that I got a decent grade in. Um, and it remains to this day the only formal training in business I've ever had. So in that respect, that was great, but the rest really you could keep. Do you think the current education system supports entrepreneurship? I think it's better. I think there's more information available. But I also think that there is um, a view that you can teach entrepreneurship. Now, I'm, a, I'm an enterprise ambassador for the uh, Leeds University Business School. And I do a lot of work there. I give a lot of talks there. Um, I interact with students. A lot of the students there have started businesses and, and people like me help them. Um, but I think it's quite dangerous to believe that you can teach entrepreneurship. I think you can learn elements of it, and I think um, you can uh, learn the theory of it, but it's not until you actually get out there and do it, and the mistakes start happening, and the problems start happening, and you really have to start thinking hard uh, to move forward, that, that you could say, you know, I'm, I'm now... I'm now an entrepreneur. You've got to do it. You can't really be taught it. You mentioned that in your first business, you saw a major problem that needed solved. You're currently involved with the Real Junk Food Project. What's the problem there and how are you solving it? Well, the Real Junk Food Project, um, it, its mission is to teach people about waste and food waste. But it, its practical actions are, are twofold. Firstly, it takes food from retailers uh, where the retailers can't sell it because it's it's too near to its its use-by date or indeed it might be past its best before date. There's a difference between the two kinds of dates. And Real Junk Food Project has donated that food. And what it then does is um, prepares that food in cafes and restaurants or there's like a sort of informal franchise model with other people that have cafes and restaurants. And it's paid for on a pay-as-you-feel basis. So people who don't have much money or indeed people who don't have any money can go and eat. So it's basically solving two problems. It's solving a problem a retailer has that there's food they need to get rid of and it's solving a problem where people uh, can't afford to eat and they're given a nutritious hot meal uh, and they pay what they want for it. That can be a penny, it can be a pound, it can be ten pounds. So it's a very very good organisation, um, very entrepreneurial but also perhaps a little bit chaotic, which is why I've come to help them to try and structure what they're doing a little bit. And there are a few others than me who joined the board with the same, the same aim. How important is having a strong purpose in business? Well, it was always my mantra that um, if I did something, uh, I'd do it 
if it made the world a better place sort of afterwards than it was before. So there needs to be some benefit. Now, I've, I've not religiously stuck to that. I did a few months uh, with a promotional merchandise business, which really benefited nobody. Um, but it was such a similar model to the business I ran that I felt an affinity to it. Um, as it happens, it didn't work out in the end because the business owner didn't want the discipline that I brought to the table. Um, you know, he didn't feel that that was for him. And, and that's fair enough, you know, you, you, you try and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, I think I should be truer to my principles. Um, certainly the startups I'm working with, the charity work I'm doing, the social enterprises I'm involved with, they're all um, all very much uh, businesses with a, with a purpose and that might be a social purpose, an environmental purpose or it might even be an artistic purpose um, and I'm quite involved with the arts, I sit on the board of an art gallery in Leeds called the Tetley which does a lot of outreach work, the impact that art can have on children is huge, particularly children from deprived parts of the city and we're right in one of the most deprived parts of the city and we work with the school kids there and we, we give them artistic experiences and that's great, really good for them because they don't have that otherwise. One of your ten commandments is to reinvent yourself. You seem to have done quite a, quite a, bit, a bit of that throughout your career. How does, say, someone who is in a bit of a rut, maybe they're working a job they don't like, how do they reinvent themselves? Well, I think um, you've really got to push yourself out of your comfort zone and think a lot about who you are and where you are and where you're going. So the reinvention in business was from being an agent to being a distributor to being a manufacturer under license to being what you might call a virtual manufacturer to actually having our own factory. So there was a, like a full loop of activity um, of changing the business model. Uh, and I kept changing because the competitive landscape kept changing. So people will look at you and think, oh, that's good, he's doing well, I'll, I'll copy you, I'll do, I'll do that myself. Um, so you've got to keep moving on. Um, and I remember doing some work with the designer Wayne Hemingway once, and he said, um, you know, I don't, I don't uh, register my designs. If someone co copies me, I'm just flattered, but by then I've moved on, I'm doing something else. And that's quite a, an interesting way of looking at things. Um, in terms of me, I left uh, just over two years ago a job where every day I was sort of dressed in a suit and a shirt and a tie and I was the chief executive of a public company and I had all the responsibility with that. Um, to now where I'm very plural and I do lots of different things, I'm involved with different organisations, um, I've demonstrated um, literally just through getting on and doing it that I can take photographs, I can get them exhibited in an art gallery, I can have thousands of people following me on Instagram, I can research and write and present for television, which I'm doing locally in Leeds, and hopefully that will lead to some national television work uh, in due course. But also I'm able to sit on boards and I'm able to advise anything from a charity to a startup to a, to a big business based on all of the skills that I've learned along the way. So. To reinvent yourself, I think the first thing you have to do is be open to reinventing yourself. You know, what did I do on day one I was out of the business? I put a shirt and collar and tie on like I did every other day and then eventually I thought, do you know, this is not right, this doesn't fit. What do I do? 
you know, how do I present myself? So I went down to Selfridges and I bought some more gear. And I look 20 years younger now. So you've just got to be open to doing it. And, and, then, and then it happens. When you started off, you were working in direct marketing. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, I'd learned the sort of black art of direct marketing in, in fitted bedrooms. And I'd inherited a pretty chaotic uh, organization where... Um, you know, people would clip a coupon from the Sunday Times magazine, very expensive advert for the business, uh, and nothing would happen to it for days, by which time, you know, somebody might ring, another company would have already been in and sold a bedroom. So I turned this round and I got it humming like a well-oiled machine, you know, the coupon would arrive, we'd ring that night, we'd be in the next week, we'd sell a bedroom. And it got to the point where every time the phone rang, we knew exactly how much money that was worth based on the average conversion rates. You know, one in so many would have an appointment and one in, one in so many appointments would buy a bedroom. Um, so every time the phone rang, we knew it was, you know, X thousand pounds. So the right people had to be in place to answer the phone. And, you know, if, if you weren't one of the people who were supposed to answer the phone, it was actually... Um, you know, a sackable offence to pick up a <laughs> to pick up a phone if you weren't one of the people who was primed to do it. So, direct marketing is very interesting. It's very very focused. It's uh, and certainly, you know, with the work I went on to do in e-commerce, really really useful because uh, e-commerce is direct marketing just in a in a slightly different way, just with a different different format. And I. I was a pioneer in e-commerce. I sold water butts and compost bins online way before anybody else was doing this. Direct marketing has obviously been a very useful skill for you to for you to have developed early on. If you could go back to before you started, say around the age of 21, are there any other skills you would focus on developing? Well, yeah, I think I'd have probably benefited from a bookkeeping course, you know, from some solid uh, accountancy skills, maybe maybe not booking. I know how to keep books. I'm thinking more along the lines of um, how you might understand a balance sheet and a set of accounts, that kind of thing, um, which I had to learn the hard way. Would have been useful, um, probably useful to pick up another language or two while your brain is able to cope with it, which uh, <laughs> which uh, as you get older it isn't. What else would I have done at 21? Well, I'd have bought up as much of the East End of London as I could have afforded. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, probably uh, a few investments that uh, I didn't think were worthwhile at the time, um, which obviously, with, with hindsight, have proved to be, uh, to be very good. What's your major focus for the next three to five years? Well, what happened when I got out of the business was I got, I got a lump of money, quite a lot of money um, it wasn't what you might call never work again money had I been at a different place in my life probably I could have quite easily wound down and sat on a beach and everything would have been hunky-dory but my children are very young and they're gonna have to go through school and university and that's gonna cost and so um, what I have is a window to explore things and um, my my sort of gut feeling at the moment is, much as I'm a great non-executive director, it's actually more fun doing the television stuff. Um, but at the moment, I can earn 15 times as much in a day as a director, non-executive director, as I can as a television presenter, because I'm doing um, simple things for 
micro channels uh, locally. Now, as my television experience grows, more people are interested to talk to me and I've got dialogues going on with a number of production companies and there will be a point where something happens, where the right, the right programme for me comes along or one of my ideas uh, gels with, with a producer. So I'm working on that kind of thing. Um, I would, I think, much prefer um, a bit more celebrity and to be paid to give my opinion uh, publicly rather than uh, to um, advise businesses who, um, you know, there's always a risk that they don't listen to you. That's the perennial non-executive headache that you, you tell them how to do it and they decide they know better uh, and that's frustrating. So I'm, I'm, I'm becoming a bit more interested in the creative side. My photography is going really well. I've had an exhibition running in Leeds for about three months. Um, this is sort of candid black and white street photography um, going incredibly well and a lot of people follow me on Instagram and typically four or five hundred people liking each image I post which means I'm very engaged with my, my audience um, and, and I have to say the creative stuff is, is what I'm enjoying but being involved with businesses and organisations is also a skill I have and charities and uh, um, there's something of an obligation to, scare, to sort of share your skills and, uh, and I do a lot of that and I do a lot of that unpaid and a little bit of it where I do get paid. What's one thing you believe that most people think is crazy? Well, I'm a big believer, believer in, in giving. I'm a big believer in, in not just money but time as well and I give, I give a lot of money and I give a lot of time and I give a lot of help to lots of charities and organisations and I think, I think that always underpinned what I was doing that if you, if you make a lot of money then you can give a lot of money away and it might sound counterintuitive but I actually get great pleasure from particularly where you make a difference particularly where you can see that what you've done has made an impact um, and certainly organisations like the Prince's Trust which I'm closely involved with which empowers people from very poor backgrounds to start businesses. Um, you know, there's a lady in Birmingham who I think she's a single mum, and she started a business. Uh, she started a business doing balloons, with the help of the Prince's Trust. And I, uh, I saw her pick up an award in London, I don't know, three, four years ago. And then I was watching the Queen's Jubilee service at Westminster Abbey on the television, and she was reading the lesson. You know, this is how powerful. An organisation like that is, transforms people's lives, moves them from where they're nobody to where they're absolutely somebody. Uh, and, and that, for me, is, is an amazing thing to be part of that and to help with that. And I also give the occasional lecture for the Prince's Trust. I go and talk to people who are starting up in business and try and help them. Similarly, this is why I do work at the university. I go and talk at schools. I'm always ready to sort of share my, my experience and, and to some extent my time because I do some practical work for charities as well, um, but also, you know, to give money where money's needed and where it can have an impact. So, yeah, people might think, well, what do you want to do all this for? You're crazy giving your money away. Actually, it really is one of the things that really makes me tick. There's a big myth in our society around the solo entrepreneur the lone wolf who does everything by himself. From your experience, how important are relationships in business? 
Well, I think business is about relationships. Um, you have your relationships with your customers, very important. The customer has to be the, the central part of your organization because that, without customers, you're dead. Your suppliers are uh, a key part of this because without your suppliers, you can't do what you want to do. You have to keep close to them. I used to buy my suppliers Christmas presents. Um, and your staff, your team are also very important to you. Uh, and your relationship with them is also critical. Um, for me, there was always a deliberate bit of a distance between my team and me. I felt that that was important, that the relationship had to be professional. Uh, and in fact, the first time my board of directors came to my house for dinner was after I'd sold the business. I didn't feel it was appropriate while I was, while I was working with them in the business. I felt that there needed to be a professional relationship uh, between us, but a relationship none, nonetheless. Um, I was always the figurehead of the business, but in fairness, in the last few years I was there, other people did most of the day-to-day the -day work, and I was really strategic and responsible for the relationship with the city um, and that kind of thing. Um, obviously, city relationship, relationship with stakeholders, bankers, brokers, financial PR people, this kind of thing. Um, but in many ways, I was also quite a lone wolf, as you as, as you call it. You know, the buck stopped with me. Um, I would take advice from people, I would listen to people, but ultimately, I would have to make a decision that was right for me and right for the business. And hopefully, I, I made the right decisions along the way. Um, you look at history, you know, the great entrepreneurs of the past, um, they were all on their own, they were all personalities. They obviously had big teams of people working for them, but ultimately they were the people who had their name on the door. Having your name on the door is a great focus for getting it right, because if you get it wrong, it's your name that's in the mud. And that's something I learned when I was working in the Fitty Bedroom Company, because the guy who owned that business called David Strachan, and his name was over the door. You mentioned your grandfather was a huge inspiration to you growing up and a role model. Have you had any other role models who have, who have had a similar effect on you? I, I don't think particularly I've had one role model. I, in fact, I think everybody I've ever met in some way I've, I've learned from. So you might learn how you don't want to do something from meeting somebody and talking to them. So it's obviously one, one's parents are a big impact. Um, I think I wanted a career in business. My, my, my late father was a professional, he was a doctor. Um, and I felt that people whose families were in business were, do, were a lot better off than we were. Um, and, and, and so much as I admired him for what he did medically, it wasn't for me. You know, uh, uh, perhaps if my father hadn't been a doctor, I might have been drawn towards a profession. But, but you know, you, you, you sort of learn, you learn positive and you learn negative things from everybody that you come across. Uh, and, and even now, I, I try and have a principle that if people want to meet me, I, I make the time to do it because there's nobody out there that you're not going to learn something from. There's no meeting you're going to have where you're not richer as a result of having sat and shared half an hour or an hour talking to somebody. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time meeting people and chatting with people and uh, hopefully they get a bit from me and I get a bit from them. So every time you meet someone, you're trying to learn something from them? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a practical limit that you you know you can't spend every minute of every day. Um, but uh, one lesson I learned from a guy who I actually I actually put him off for quite a bit because I thought uh, he worked for a charity and I thought you know I'm, I've got enough charities, I'm doing enough. Um, I, I, I could do without this but eventually I relented and I met him and we sat and talked for about two and a half hours and it was one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had and um, now I don't I don't fob people off because you know you, you, you're just going to miss that one that one discussion that's going to be compelling and life-changing uh, and it's not worth it how important are mentors for young entrepreneurs I think you've got to have the right older, wiser heads. I mean, I eventually had a board with non-executive directors, but they they were corporate people. They weren't really entrepreneurial people. And uh, oh gosh, I was um, probably late thirties. Um, yeah, late thirties, and I brought these people in to be non-execs, but they weren't entrepreneurs. And I think I could have benefited from somebody that had been on the sort of growth journey before. Um, you know, somebody like I am now, like what I can offer to a business, which is, um, you know, yeah, I know it's all going mad, but there'll come a point where this stops. And while it's going crazy, you can get away with anything, but <laughs> it's going to stop. And you've got to have a sound business there so that when things do slow down a bit, you're not going to trip up, you're not going to you're not going to make the mistakes that others make that they think the good times will happen forever because they don't. So um, I think it's very important for people to have a sounding board um, and that can be very formal or it can be very informal. Um, I mean I've had very informal relationships with people who are on their journey and I might have a cup of tea with them once every six months or once a year and a catch-up or it can be a very formal relationship where you go to all the board meetings and you have a meeting with the CEO in between the board meetings and you you closely involved with every detail of what's going on it's, it's horses for courses but it's important what's the harshest lesson you've learned in business oh I think there are a few um, so, in 2006, um, my business was worth £35 million as a quoted company. And I said to my chairman then, I've had enough. I want out. I want, the th I want my share of the £35 million and, uh, and I'm done. And he said, well, you can't do it because if you go, there won't be a business. And... Um, the market will get spooked and the business won't be worth 35 million anymore. So I'll do what I can for you, which ended up being nothing, um, but you can't do it. Now, 10 years on, or eight years on, when we actually did sell the business, it was worth a third of that. It was worth like 11 million. And it was much better a business and it had assets, it had a factory. And, and so, you know, you're, you're dealing with a market which is fickle and which doesn't necessarily play by the rules. So I think, um, yeah, I would have been a little bit tougher on trying to get my nest egg out um, of the business, which I did eventually, but um, the business was not in the best place when that happened. It, it's always better to do it when you're flying than when things are not looking so hot. Um, 
What else? What else? I'd have probably never got into bed with anybody who said, I've designed something, it's going to make you millions, and I want a big upfront payment for the licence fee, because that never worked. Okay. <laughs> we lost a lot of money as a result. Um, and I think the other thing is, um, when you've got an inkling that things are not going right with an employee, you act quickly and swiftly, rather than letting things fester, because then it's just harder to deal with. So you've got to deal with stuff quickly. That's also a very interesting lesson um, and one that I would not get caught up in the wrong way again. How long have you been in business for now? Uh, well, the actual business was running for 21 years and I suppose I was working for a few years uh, in, in other things before that. Um, and I've had two and a bit years out the other side. I mean, I, I don't consider the journey's over yet because there's other things that, that, that I want to do. Um, and I probably will start something off again, although I'll probably have somebody else involved to run it day to day because, you know, once, once um, you're used to this sort of breadth of stimulation from doing lots of different things, it's very, very difficult just to shoehorn yourself into one thing again. Um, you know, you get a bit spoiled with the variety. So you've been on this long journey, and I'm sure there there have been many ups and downs along the way. How do you stay motivated? Well, I I, I regularly set myself goals, and I I, uh, I sort of write down at the beginning of each year what I hope to achieve in the year, and I review those periodically. Um, I sit down um, every few months with a uh, with a sort of mentor of mine who, who isn't somebody that's been in business. She's a professional uh, leadership coach, but she was working with me at Strait and we've kept the relationship going. And she basically um, listens to what I'm doing and whether I've met my goals or not and gives me a little bit of steer sometimes. So that's very, very useful. Um, I think... Um, Maybe I'm maybe I'm lucky. Maybe I'm just one of those people who is just just driven. But there's just so much to learn and so much to see and so much to do, and it excites me and uh, it, it enthuses me. And whether it's going off for a few days with my camera to to take some candid street photos, whether it's researching or writing pieces for television, whether it's writing a business plan, which is something else I've done in recent days, um, all these things interest me and uh, um, I, I don't seem to have the tendency just to say I can't be bothered I'm not going to do it yeah there comes a point where I might get tired or bored so I'm going to do something else or I'm going to sit down or I you know a big fan of power naps big big fan of power naps always have been and uh, shamelessly you know even when I was running the business I would have a, a sleep in the afternoon but uh, then you wake up and you 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 know reinvigorated and ready for the rest of the day and the evening so it's no bad thing. What advice would you give to someone who's thinking about starting a business but who hasn't got going yet? Well I think there's two things I mean one is just do it because until you do it you're not going to know what's what it's all about and if you don't do it you'll be sorry for the rest of your life. I think it also can be useful to actually go and work for somebody else for a little bit just to understand what goes on in companies, how they're structured, how they work, 
um, how you would do things in your own business, how you wouldn't do things in your own business, just to get a bit of experience and possibly a bit of money in the bank. Um, no bad thing. And certainly everything I learned in the brief time I was involved with other organisations helped me immeasurably along the way because there was a picture in my mind of how an organisation is structured. And without that, it's not so easy to build one. What are your views on failure? Have you failed in any businesses yourself? I haven't failed in a, in a business, but I've certainly failed along the way in the things I've done. I've, I've taken wrong turns, I've done things which um, were not the right thing to do. I've failed to notice when other people made mistakes, people reporting to me made catastrophic mistakes and I didn't see it. Um, we fall and we bounce back higher and that's the way to deal with failure. And in fact I did a workshop at the business school last week, five entrepreneurs myself included, talking about failure and we were all on the same page. You know, things are going to happen, you're going to get things wrong, you fall down, you bounce back higher, you learn from your mistake and you don't make the mistake again. That's pretty much everything. Thanks so much for doing the interview, Jonathan. Where can people find you online? So, uh, jonathanstraight.com. Um, the photographs are on Instagram, straightpix, that's P-I-X. Um, I'm on Twitter as Planet Straight, and I'm on LinkedIn. So, uh, any of those places, find me, connect with me, and let's have a conversation.